You're listening to the Transformative Podcast brought to you by the Research Center for the History of Transformations at the University of Vienna. Hello, today I'm speaking with Doro Bohle, Professor of Political Science at the European University Institute in Florence and one of the most productive researchers on neoliberalism and the political economy of Eastern Europe. I am Philipp Theer, the founder and director of Rezet. Hi Doro, nice to speak with you. Hi Philipp. In 2012, you published a very important book on capitalist diversity in Eastern Europe. Back then, after the global financial crisis, Neoliberalism looked weak and defeated. Now you are stressing the resilience of neoliberalism in your new research. Why and how has neoliberalism become resilient? This is really one of the major puzzles. So normally, if you think about like the Great Depression or also the, the crisis of Fordism in the 1970s, you basically see a lot of change afterwards. And what I find surprising, especially for East Central Europe, is really how many countries, even after a major crisis, so think about the Baltic states that had really one of the biggest crises in economic history, they didn't really change their economic policies. Then, of course, we have some countries like Hungary where um, you see quite some change, but there's also a lot of continuity. Therefore, my claim that uh, neoliberalism is resilient, more resilient than we should have thought. Why this is the case? They are both domestic and international factors. If you think about the crisis management, especially of the European Union, this was clearly a very fiscal hawkish way of, of dealing with the fallout of the crisis. Domestically, I think for East Central Europe, there are two reasons why neoliberalism might be resilient. So the one reason is for many countries, it had proven the way towards capitalism and all the institutions and the major economic actors are supporting this. And second, in comparison to Southern Europe, you see a pretty fast recovery of East Central Europe after the crisis. So if you have an economic model that works, and that works even after a crisis, even if the crisis was deep, then there is not so much reason for change. You know, if you look beyond Eastern Europe, neoliberalism also looks pretty alive and kicking in Western Europe and the US, right? There, I think a major issue really is that the EU basically framed the crisis not as a financial, but a crisis of public debt and over-indebtedness of states, and therefore ushered in this, this really strong um, austerity policy. And for many countries that tried alternatives, think Greece, Spain, there was really not much space for alternatives. Now, the U.S. is also an interesting case. Let's take the Trump presidency and the economic policies. How much is that neoliberalism and how much is that, you know, a kind of recombination neoliberalism with some more particularistic policy? So I'm not entirely sure how far we can stretch the concept. The picture has become complicated and in some ways paradox. I think what can be seen there, but of course also in Eastern Europe, if you think about Hungary in particular, Poland, is economic nationalism is on the rise. Borders are closed for migrants. Politicians are demanding now, faced with COVID-19, to cut unreliable supply chains and to bring back production, especially for medical equipment and vaccines. So how does that go together with the continuity 
of neoliberalism, which was about free global trade, free flows of capital, liberalization, deregulation. We see since the financial crisis an increasing strain on the, the type of mainstream neoliberalism that we used to have before the crisis, so where you have uh, the idea of globalization of trade, globalization of e economic institutions, which was even combined with free movement uh, of labor. And we certainly see that the COVID crisis has really revealed that this has a number of drawbacks, which in a pandemic might make uh, policymakers think whether this is still the right recipe. The pandemics might eventually be the moment when we see really a reversal, but so far we are not yet there. The one thing that might really shift at least a lot of Europe in a different direction is the vaccination shortage that we are seeing right now. Because that really lays bare the non-existing manufacturing capacity and the dependence on other countries. Eastern Europe is especially depending on supply chain and on, on support and delivery of, you know, be it masks or be it um, simple medical equipment or, or vaccines. So they are especially vulnerable. But nevertheless, even now in the COVID crisis, we see, at least on the surface, uh, a nationalist response. Um, that is, again, um, a little bit puzzling. I mean, is this economic nationalism and this rhetoric nationalism, is it just something which is there on the surface and not influencing economic policies that much? There is certainly a pushback against too much international integration. And in a crisis like this, the default option is we know basically where we can be safe and that is somehow the nation, right? So we come back to, to the nation. Is this necessarily the opposite of neoliberalism and does this translate really in different type of policies? And here again, I think if we look at the region, the region is not is heterogeneous. So, so far, what I see, especially in the Baltic states, also because they are just very small states, so it is very difficult, of course, to build up an, you know, an own manufacturing business, especially that they have been deindustrialized quite heavily. Uh, so I think there the, the impulse is stronger towards uh, staying with the international integration and really trying to benefit from that also for security concerns. Now, where we see more nationalism and also the attempt of really breaking with some dependency, not much. Uh, so Poland is probably the, the country that uh, takes not nationalism, but basically trying to develop an own manufacturing base most serious. But if you think about, now let's take a country like Hungary, the nationalist rhetoric is huge. The country does not do much to reduce dependency. You have the nationalist rhetoric, but this doesn't mean that we return to the economic nationalism like we know them from the 1930s, where basically you build closed economies. Economies are still pretty open. In Upper Austria, there is a factory to be closed after more than 80 years of production, Steyr, producing lorries medium-sized for MAN, a German company. And MAN is relocating the production to Poland. BMW is relocating production to Hungary. Uh, so obviously this combination between uh, right-wing populism and economic liberalism, so the right-wing market radicalism seems to work pretty well. Isn't it a, a strong competitor for the more welfareist states in Western Europe? 
I completely agree it is working. Uh, it has been working very well. And this is the basic continuity which we see both in Poland and in Hungary, the continuity with fostering foreign direct investment through comparatively cheap labor force. And especially in Hungary, there has also been a clear deregulatory agenda concerning the labor force. So unionization is very little. The labor law has been several times changed in such a way to make basically labor much more exploitable. And this is what is happening. Also because there is a big shortage of labor in basically all the regions. And, and so in this sense, yes, it continues to be a very attractive location for especially German, Austrian uh, foreign direct investment in the manufacturing sector. The countries also subsidize very heavily foreign direct investment. But whether it's a competition to Western Europe, I'm not entirely sure because it's a kind of complementarity, right? So, so Western Europe indeed loses some of the production. But if you think German is an export weltmeister, Partly because it relocates a lot of the more labor-intensive Eastern Europe. So that makes it very competitive externally. Some of these gains from export of the export economy are also going back to the German economy. Referring back to an earlier question that you had about the disruption of supply chains and so on and so on, I would even think that a stronger re regionalization, so that some of the, uh, the production that has been offshore to countries like China are being reshored, but to Eastern Europe because, because of the close uh, geographical distance, right? So here Eastern Europe could be a winner. A last aspect about your research, which I find really interesting, gender. You stress that a lot, that this is a really important component of this right-wing populism, what about gender and gender equality or rather inequality in the region? If you go through the literature, the explanations for, you know, why Orban and maybe Kaczynski, why does their, the nationalist message sell? And then you find it's because uh, there was this deindustrialization and the, the workers got increasingly frustrated and so on. There is a manufacturing bias in so much of the comparative political economy that basically does not consider like half of this really being produced. And if one looks at the current political economy through a gendered lens, one sees both the reproduction, the continuity, but also the change and how new groups and especially this authoritarian capitalism gain hegemony. So it's a power dimension, which is normally neglected in, in the research and the comparative political economy research, and which I think needs to be brought in. And the second thing is, I mean, if you just look at the symbolic representation, I mean, Orbans and the Kaczynskis and so on, so male, and it is so obviously male, right? It's a strong men, stadiums, I mean, this culture of masculinity, it is so obvious. So it must have a meaning, right? It must have a reason why we have this culture of masculinity that is being really projected. And again, we don't get there if we only look at class analysis as the more Marxist analysis would have it. You have to get at the intersection of class and gender, and of course, in, in many ways, also race. I mean, the xenophobia that is rampant is also part of the same. This is the symbolic glue that holds it somehow really together, and it is just too important uh, to ignore it. Thanks a lot. I think this is really important because at the Red we are also working with a strong gender dimension. I also believe it is very important because that was a a key feature of the first neoliberal transformation that actually women uh, suffered much more 
from that than men by average and especially of course in the labor market and the same might be happening or is happening at the moment again and that there is a rising gender imbalance um, especially in these right-wing populist regimes and so it's not just right-wing populist market radicals but they're also very gendered market radicals and thanks for stressing that as a final word i just want to say that we're all greatly looking forward when you will come to the university of vienna and join our university in the fall thanks a lot for the conversation and i hope to see you again thank you very much You have been listening to the transformative podcast produced by Redset in Vienna. Wir sind das Volk! Wir sind das Volk!